0: In Matthew 5, Jesus taught that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Today on Awaken to Grace, we're going to study this text. We're going to see exactly what Jesus meant when he teaches us how to pursue, not satisfaction, because that's what most of us do in life, but rather pursue the things that bring satisfaction, And what we're going to see is how what brings the greatest satisfaction into our life are the things of God, things of righteousness. This is why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all things will be added to your life. Many of us fall into the trap of pursuing happiness, pursuing the things that we think will ultimately satisfy us. And what Jesus does in this text is he helps us untwist this distortion that sin brings, and instead of pursuing the things we hope will fulfill us, well, then we begin to pursue the things that God says will certainly fulfill us, things like righteousness. I hope you enjoy today's broadcast of Awakened to Grace. I want to talk to us for a moment about the responsibility that we bear to lead in this unpredictable time. The responsibility that is ours for those of us who we say that we follow Jesus Christ. We are not Christian in name only. We are not nominal Christians. In other words, we do not simply bear the name of Christ yet deny Him with our very lifestyle, know we're different. We bear the name of Christ and we pick up our cross daily to follow Him. We are serious about our faith. We're serious about following Jesus. Even in the sinful culture that we live right now today, we are immensely serious about following Jesus Christ. I hope you're in that camp. I want to talk to you today about what our responsibilities are as Christ followers on behalf of a country that is in grave danger. On behalf of a country that is in great trouble. I enjoy reading history books and I just finished a book this week on the Civil War and much of the Native American Tensions that were happening in the 1860s to the early 1900s. And as awful as a time period as that was. uh, Even then, even then, reading history. I don't know if there was as much chaos and confusion as you have now. At least in that time period, you had a very strong church of Jesus Christ. Much stronger, I fear, than what is today. And you and I, as Christ followers, as the church, the capital C church, you and I have a great responsibility. And the question is, will we lead? The question is, will we understand and accept what Peter said, that if judgment is going to begin, let it begin at the house of God. Many people are asking right now, is America facing God's judgment? I believe in many respects we are. Many Christians get confused when it comes to the judgment of God because, you know, you read the Old Testament and you see great calamities and great catastrophes and then compare it to our day and it would look as though God is not actively judging But see, you must understand, we live in a different day. We live in an age of grace. We live in days that are called grace. You can't compare the old covenant to what is now the new covenant. You have to understand that in the Old Testament, the wrath of God was called the active wrath of God. Today, we call it the passive wrath of God because of the age of grace. But that doesn't mean that wrath is not on our country. That doesn't mean that God's judgment is not here. The way that I view God's judgment on our country is perhaps there are many times that God could intervene. That God could step in. That God could prevent. But God in His judgment doesn't. I think in many respects this society... This culture for many decades now has snubbed its nose at an almighty God. We have kicked God out of every facet of society, have we not? And now we're shocked when God doesn't intervene. Could it be that much of what we're seeing in today's landscape is the passive wrath of God to where God could intervene but God doesn't? My children are nine, seven. Three and two. And there are times that they can't do something. They're frustrated and they'll bring something to me. They'll want me to open something or fix something or whatever. And I go to reach for it and then they won't give it to me. Well, what's my response as a father? My response is, okay, you figure it out. (laughs) Could that be much of God's response to our country right now? You don't want me involved? You don't call on my name. You don't repent of sin. Okay. Then you do it. That's called the passive wrath of God. And I believe our country is experiencing. So Christians have to be aware. As scripture says. We have to awaken ourselves. And we have to understand what is our role. What is our responsibility. And I believe Christ Shares that with us in Matthew chapter 5. We live in a very different day right now. We live in a very dangerous time right now. And Christians, hear my heart today. We must be crystal clear in what God expects of us. And if we're going to have a voice in all of this noisy chaos... If we're going to lead at all in all of this confusion, in all of this chaos, then we better be crystal clear in what God expects out of us individually as well as corporately. Amen? Matthew chapter 5. We're talking in this series primarily about righteousness. We introduced the idea of righteousness last week. And this week I want to continue on with the theme of righteousness. And where we're going to be. We're going to study a few of the beatitudes that Christ laid out. But our primary text is Matthew chapter 5 verse 6. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied or they will be filled. Now where I'm going today but we're going we're gonna to work our way there. I, I don't feel like we can fully appreciate verse 6. Until we understand the previous verses. But let me just tell you where we're going to end up. Americans, because we have a document. That's unlike anything in all of the history of humanity. Our constitution. Which is... Tremendous and wonderful, but I'm going to show you to where when it comes to biblically, individually, spiritually, it's not the right attitude to have. And I'm going to show you how there's a great distortion. Our constitution tells us that every single man and woman has the right to pursue happiness. Now thank God for that. That matters in a democracy. That matters in a republic. That matters in a country. And thank God that we live in the country that we do live. Although I have tremendous fears going forward about what civil liberties and what religious liberties could very well be on the line. And I'll just tell you, I am already settling within my heart where I will stand. When civil and religious liberties are challenged. Right? You can think about that for yourself. But I'm already thinking and praying concerning it. Thank God that we live in a country that gives us the right to pursue happiness. And while that's great for a democracy, it's not so great spiritually. And I'm going to show you why today. This is where I'm going to end up. In verse number 6, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Now those are natural cravings. Those are God-given appetites. Those are cravings. But it says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied the problem that we have as particularly as as americans is what we pursue what we go after what our ambition is is the satisfaction and what Jesus is going to teach us in these scriptures is sin distorts that view. It twists that view. God has not designed you to pursue satisfaction or to pursue happiness. God has designed you to pursue God and the things of God, the righteousness of God, because that ultimately brings satisfaction. You understand? So because we are wired to think, well, it's my right to be happy, we pursue happiness. And God goes, no, no. You are to pursue righteousness and holiness, and that will make you happy. That will make you fulfilled. It's not that God's against happiness. Now, let me be really clear, okay? When Jesus begins in verse number three and says, blessed are those, the word blessed there is translated happy. It's not that God doesn't want you to be happy. He does want you to be happy. It's that God as a wise father knows that happiness is not ultimately joy. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does a good father give their children every single thing they want? A couple of weeks ago, Emmy, our seven-year-old, she wanted to do something I can't remember. maybe it was go to a park, I don't remember. She wanted to do something, and whatever it was, it wasn't the right timing. And Sadie and I both said, no. Well, you know what her argument was. "Well, you, mom, Dad, you just don't want me happy." No, child. No, that's not my goal in life, is to make you happy. I'm so sorry, but that's not what I'm aiming for. I want her to be mature. I want her to grow up as a mature adult, right? Well, so it is with God. It's not that God wants to take happiness from you. But listen, God is not only concerned about your little happiness. I counseled a lady who was leaving her husband for another man. And when I confronted the sin, and when I said, you are wrong, and this is sinful, do you know what her rebuttal was? Yeah, but Pastor Chad, at the end of the day, God wants me wrong as wrong can be. God's ultimate goal is not your happiness. You know why? Because God is a very wise father. God does want you happy. Blessed are the poor and fit. That means happy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. That means happy. Yes, God does want you happy, but that's not his chief aim. And let me tell you why. Because do you know how cheap happiness is? Do you know how cheap A thing it is? Does the Bible teach when it comes to the nine precious fruits of the Holy Spirit? In Galatians chapter 5, when it comes to those nine fruits of the Spirit, is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit happiness? Absolutely not. Yet it's what we chase. It's what we pursue. It's what we aim for. It's what we gripe about. It's what we complain about. Come on now, am I preaching right? So, God, listen, happiness is cheap. Happiness is not real value. But as Americans, we see it that way. But not biblically. Happiness is not of great value. Do you know why? Because God, in His infinite fatherly wisdom, God knows this. Happiness does not bring joy. Do you know what one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is? Joy. And joy is what God wants you to have. Do you know what happiness really is? Happiness really, at the end of the day, it has to do with happenings in your life. It depends on how things are happening, on whether or not you're happy. And so if things are going real good, you're real up. And if things are not going well, you're way down. And then if things are working out, you're way up. And if things aren't, you're way down. And you're just up and down and up and down. God doesn't want you that way. He doesn't want your emotions always up and down. God wants you a solid, stable Christian. He wants you consistent. He wants you to rise above. And listen, when you got joy in your life, happiness is not an issue. Because the joy transcends above all of the happenings of your life. Do you understand what I'm saying today? Joy trumps it. It goes above all of the happenings. As most of you know, I'm completely blind. And there are some days that, you know, I'll go through my day. And I'll be as productive as ever before. And I get this done and this done. And have this meeting. And meet with this person. And do this and do that. And then at the end of the day, I'll have to remind myself that I couldn't see a thing all day. I'm just in rhythm. And then there are other days I wake up. With it smacking me in the face. And it's all I can think about. Now when I'm here or I'm at home. I'm completely in my element. I'm as you know. Uh, I'm as comfortable and walking around and getting things. I mean I'm just I'm perfect. But you get me outside of here. I'm totally out of my element. I have to have help. As some of you know. We, we went to the beach a few weeks ago. And. I was with my family, and I want my kids to have great memories. And, but, oh, my goodness, friends. My first day and a half there, I was miserable. Miserable. Hated it. Counting down the days till we come home. Un- unfamiliar. It, it, literally, it felt like being blind from day one. That's what it felt like. It felt like day one, and I was miserable. And a day and a half into it, I literally had to kick myself and say, Chad, this isn't acceptable. You got to choose joy. This isn't fair for your kids. You may be struggling, it may be hard, but you got to change. As a matter of fact, totally off topic, I was reading some book this week, some audio book, and it talked about a giraffe being born. Have you ever seen a giraffe born? It said, to their astonishment, the mama stood completely up, and the giraffe just fell like ten feet onto its back. And you know what the mama did? Kicked the baby to get it going. And then the baby drafts up on all fours, but it's a little wobbly. And you know what mama did? She kicked it again to get it going. Listen, sometimes we got to kick ourselves. Come on now, right? We got to kick ourselves spiritually and say, this isn't acceptable. This isn't right. Sometimes you have to choose joy. But God, in his infinite wisdom, do you know why he wants you to have joy over happiness? Because what does the Bible say? It's the joy of the Lord that is my what? Strength. Happiness does not bring you strength. Only joy does. Joy brings strength, not happiness. If all you pursue is happiness, well, you're just going to be up and down and up and down and up and down. And your emotions are going to be all over the map. No. Choose joy. And when you choose joy, when you say, Holy Spirit, produce the fruit of joy in my life, let me tell you, you'll rise above. You'll rise above. And then your emotions and your thinking and your feelings, it'll all settle down and stable out. So, it's not that God is opposed to happiness. But you do need to understand, God's not going to let you stay a spiritual child and pursue happiness. He wants you to pursue something more mature something more beneficial, something more lasting, joy. Can we say amen to that? When it comes to maturity, these beatitudes are going to lead us toward maturity. And listen, it's okay to be a child spiritually. I mean, we all have to grow up. What's wrong is to stay a child spiritually, right? We have to grow. And for the record, when, Sadie, when I said that to Sadie this morning about that baby, I want on the record. I was exaggerating as exaggeration could be, okay? That's just for the... If you came in late, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But that's just for the record. Our quota's met. Our quiver's full. We're done. Amen. Anyway... Piper, my oldest, she's nine, she came up to me between the two services this morning. (laughs) You you want a definition of socialism? I'll give it to you. Piper, my nine-year-old, came up to me this morning and said, Dad, I found the bed I want. Oh, you did? I can't wait to hear this. $460. And then, you know what she said? You know what she said? She said, I'll pay for it. Well, I'm thinking, you're nine years old. How are you going to pay for it? But then, you know what she said? She said, I'll pay for it if you give me the money. (laughs) I won't tell you what ran through my mind because it would offend many people, but that's okay politically. But anyways, um. It's okay for my children to be children. It's okay for them to enjoy their childhood. But my goal as a father is for them to mature. And to grow into adulthood. You may be very young in your faith. Or you may be someone who's been saved for decades. But you've never really grown spiritually. It's okay. To be young spiritually. But listen. God expects you to grow. God expects you to mature. And that's why you cannot get trapped into this idea, God wants me happy. No. God wants much more for you. Much more valuable things God desires for you than the cheapness of happiness. Because that will fade and that will falter. So, look with me. Verse number 1. Matthew chapter 5. The Bible says that Jesus seeing the crowds. And thank God, Jesus was never impressed with crowds. Public opinion never swayed the truth of God. Amen? And Jesus just went right. A matter of fact, many times in the Gospels, when a crowd would gather to hear him teach, it was after the crowd dispersed that Jesus would do his true teaching. Crowds never impressed Jesus. And that's why I'm so thankful. It doesn't matter how many is in our building today. It doesn't matter the number of people watching online. It doesn't matter how many was at the 9 a.m. or how many will be here tonight for student services. There may be a great crowd but let me tell you, Jesus is interested in you. Crowds never impressed him. So he goes to a mountain to teach. In verse 2, <clears throat> verse 1, his disciples follow him. Verse 2, he opened his mouth and began to teach them. And verse 3, look what he says. Number 1, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a wonderful saying. What a wonderful principle. A wonderful truth. Again, for many of us, our American way of thinking gets in the way here. Notice he says, blessed not are necessarily the poor, although God has always, always has and always will have a heart for the poor. But he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now isn't that interesting? Interesting. For theirs is a kingdom of heaven. Now understand, when we talk about the Beatitudes and what the Beatitudes are, they're the beginning of this great, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the most significant and important sermon ever preached in the history of humanity. And of course it was preached by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount spans from Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. And it actually ends with the teaching of the rock uh, and the sand, the, the two foundations. That's actually the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. And in this beginning part, in what we call the Beatitudes, you need to understand that what Christ is talking about is an inward work. Okay? So he says, first of all, blessed are The poor in spirit. Well, what are the poor in spirit? What does that mean? Who are they? The poor in spirit means those who recognize that when it comes to their soul, when it comes to their spirit, they are absolutely bankrupt before a holy and a righteous God. There is not one single thing of value that you can offer to God within your own self. There isn't anything that can impress Him. There isn't anything that you can earn from God on your own merit or on your own self. As a matter of fact, the book of Isaiah says that our own righteousness is as filthy rags before a holy God. So, when you look at yourself, do you see yourself as sufficient? Do you see yourself as special? Do you see yourself as self-made and... When you look at your life, do you inventory your assets, your income, your things? Or are you able to have the biblical perspective... That yes, you may have a nice car. Yes, you may live in a fine home. Yes, you may have good income. Yes, you may have quite the nest egg. Yes, you may be building your 401k. You may have a good retirement. You may have the things in life that as an American, it is your right to pursue. But spiritually, do you see yourself as bankrupt before God? Do you see yourself as though you have nothing of value that can earn, that can merit, that can impress an almighty God? If you want to be biblical, the right perception is to see yourself as God sees you. And that's poor in spirit with nothing to offer the Lord. Jesus said, for those of you that will have that perspective, Jesus says, for those of you Yours will be the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that wonderful today? We measure our lives by the things we accumulate. Oh, what a dangerous thing to do, church. Don't measure your lives by what you accumulate. You know, one of the saddest places I felt I ever went, this will offend some of you. I'm sorry, I I try not to offend people, but I guess I'm just in that mode today. I don't know. Some of you will be shocked and you'll be highly offended. Just brace yourself. It's not a big deal. I promise. But one of the saddest places that I felt that I ever went was Graceland. You Elvis lovers are getting real nervous, aren't you? You're like, oh, don't say it. You know, what are you going to say? But you know why I counted it as sad to walk through Graceland. Because what was richest then is junk today. Do you understand? In all of his gaining. In all of his accumulating. Today were it not owned by Elvis. But it was owned by a normal average person. It would be pure junk. Don't measure by what you accumulate. Don't measure by... See, this is exactly why Jesus said, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus said that. And so often we compare our lives. We measure our lives by the wrong standards. Jesus says, you want to measure your life in the perception of God? Count yourself as poor in spirit. You may have many things. You may have many assets. You may have the things in life that you aimed for. But you should still be poor in spirit. And you may not have anything today. You may be in the building today without anything to your name. But if you're poor in spirit, Jesus would say to you, Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Notice verse, the next verse, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, is Jesus talking about Christians should always be sad? <laughs> we, should always, we should walk around every day like we've just attended a funeral? Is that what he's saying? No. No. Because again, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about an internal look at ourselves. And you know what Jesus is saying? Blessed are those who can weep over their sin. Blessed are those who mourn over the condition of sin. The Puritans who are one of the most fascinating historical groups of people to ever study. I learn more from the Puritans than I do from any other Christians of any other age. It was said of the Puritans that they were the doctors of the soul. And indeed they were. My all time favorite book in my library. The book that has spoken to me more so than any book other than the Bible. Is a collection of Puritan prayers. And it's called The Valley of Vision. And oh what a book. It was the Puritans who taught. The eyes were created for two things. For seeing. And for weeping. And they would say, a man does not weep over his sins until he first sees his sin. Friends, have you ever seen the state of sin of your life? Have you ever seen the offense that you are to an almighty God? Have you ever seen what your sin means in the perception of God Almighty? Jesus says, for those who care enough that they will take that perception, for those of you who will take that inventory, for those of you that will come into that area, he says, blessed are those for they shall be comforted. Now follow the logic of Jesus. We first see ourselves as spiritually bankrupt. We see that we're poor in spirit. And Jesus says, okay, you want to have that perception? Then yours will be the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) And then you won't worry about the things of life because you'll enjoy the things of the kingdom. He says, okay, second, you see your sin, you see it for what it is. You weep over your sin, you see it for what it is. Well, guess what? You'll enjoy the comforting of God. The forgiveness of the Father. Some of you are guilty today. You feel guilt. You feel shame. You feel condemned. No, my friends. You see your sin. You confess your sin. Let me tell you what you'll have. You'll have the comfort of God Almighty. For the Bible says, Even if our hearts condemn us. 1 John three nineteen. Even if our hearts condemn us. Verse 19 and 20. God is greater than our hearts. And he'll comfort the sinner. Amen? Next, notice what he says. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is another thing that modern-day Christians don't understand. We think of meekness as very weak, right? Somebody just real weak and, you know, doesn't. Doesn't say very much and doesn't raise their voice. No. Do you know what meek actually means? And the Bible says Moses was the meekest man to ever walk the earth. Do you know what the word meek literally means? Power under control. It means to be able to control yourself. It means to have Humility in your life. It means you are a humble person. That means when somebody offends you, you don't burst out. As a matter of fact, Pastor Eric read the scripture earlier out of Philippians 4 where it says, Let your reasonableness be known to all. Do you know what the word for reasonableness there is? It is maturity, it is the right attitude. It actually means not to lose control. Meek, power, under control. Are you someone that you can control your emotions? If you're not, you should be. Christ will help you with that. Are you someone that you just outburst? No, that's wrong, my friends. In my counseling office, I've had many people try to justify their outburst. And the number one justification that people try to give for their, you know, people people make two mistakes. Either they stuff everything down and they bottle everything up or they just explode and then they're over it three seconds later. Both are wrong. Both is the wrong reaction. Reasonableness is about having the right reaction. The mature reaction. And you know what I tell people who claim? They say, well, you know, I explode, but then I'm over it in three seconds, and then everything's fine. You know what I tell those people? A hurricane only lasts a few seconds. But look at the calamity it leaves. Look at the destruction. Look at the debris. And when you outburst like that, do you know what debris you're causing in your children? Do you know what debris you're leaving in your marriage? Or in your work environment? Let me tell you, emotional outburst has no place in the life of a believer. You should be able to control yourself. That's meekness. Power under control. It's a level of humility. It's a level of humbleness. And Jesus says, so, so again, watch the logic. If someone is poor in spirit they're not haughty they don't feel as though their life is everything they don't their life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions they don't gripe over what they don't have they're not in that they're not full of ingratitude and ungratefulness blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn those who see their sinful state for what it is they can see it they can confess it and therefore they can repent from it and turn from it and change for they'll be comforted then blessed are the meek those who are humble those who walk humble lives if I'm poor in spirit I'm going to be humble if I mourn over my sin I'm going to be humble and then all of this leads us down to our real text verse number six now watch how all this makes sense when I when I take on the life view, the world view, the perception that I'm spiritually bankrupt, I'm worn over my sin, and I'm a humble person, when I take that to heart, do you know what that does? That empties me of me, and that's the point of Jesus in verse number six, is to lead us to a place. Where we are empty. Then Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you see the point? Now, notice this Jesus didn't ask this crowd what they believed. Isn't this interesting? A religious figure didn't ask people what they believed. Jesus is asking them, what do they crave? Because the fact is, our beliefs do not lead us to our cravings. It's opposite. Our cravings lead us to our real beliefs. Do you understand? So, here's what I want to say to you. Your cravings are not wrong. The things in life that you crave, the things that the desires of your heart, they're not wrong. But here's where we, particularly as Americans, here's where we make it wrong. We pursue the satisfaction more than the God who can satisfy. And we justify our cravings the, the satisfaction of them, we justify it wrongly. Now, many of you know that I'm a diabetic, right? Therefore, I have to be selective in what I eat. Now, don't let me fool you. I don't excel at that at all. I'm about 50-50. But listen, I could take my cra- now. Even though I'm a diabetic, I have a monstrous appetite, right? I wake up hungry. I eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and quite a bit in between. I eat that every day. Rarely is there a day that I'll miss breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Rarely. I mean, I eat, right? But listen, would it be wrong as a diabetic... Would it be wrong for me to tell God, Well, God, you've given me my natural appetite. I'm hungry. I could eat right now. I have a natural God-given appetite. And God's given me enough resources. I can go and buy something to eat. Praise God for that. As a matter of fact, God has placed me within an alley shot of a donut store. Huh. So could I not tell God, God, you've given me my natural craving. You've given me the resources to get it. And God, you've put me within a stone's throw of a donut shop. So I'm going to go fulfill my cravings there. And would that be wise? No. As a matter of fact, a brother offered me a hot donut this morning. And by God's grace, I said, no, thank you. How often do we justify the cravings of our life? Whereas in reality, it's not the wise decision. I would be far better to eat some scrambled eggs than to eat a cream-filled donut. It's the same craving. The question is, what am I going to fill it with? Come on now, right? It's the same craving. Craving. But, what, but see, my belief that I should do the right thing for my body should determine what I do with that craving. The cravings that you have are not wrong. The cravings you have in life are not wrong. The question is, what are you filling the cravings With, And this is why God would not have his people be deceived. We would crave, we, oh, and you know this as well as I know this. Left to ourselves, we will fill those cravings with cheap happiness every single time. And I want you to hear my heart today, church. I want you to hear me. I don't say this in judgment, I don't say this throwing stones. I say this with a shepherd's heart. There are some of you that you cannot figure out what's going on in your life right now. You love God, but you're not happy. You love your spouse, but you're not happy. You love where you work, but you're not happy. And you think that something major is off and you think that something major is wrong because no matter what you do, nothing satisfies deep down. And so Satan would tell you, well, you need a different spouse. If you had a different house, if you had a different job, if you moved away and started over, If you had this or if you had that, then you would be happy. And I'm telling you, oh, my precious friends, I'm telling you, it is a lie straight from the devil. And there's no truth in it. Now, see, being a diabetic, I probably crave water more than you do. And I drink water all day long. Matter of fact, I keep a big Pals cup of water all the time. You probably think I'm drinking tea, but it's actually, I I like it because it's so big. And I just constantly refill it with cold water. But you know as well as I know. Have you ever been super thirsty and you drink a Coke or a soft drink? Does it quench your thirst? See, the glory of water is that it quenches. It satisfies. That's the glory of it. And do you know what the glory. Of Christ is. Is that he satisfies. He quenches. The parts of the soul. That sex. And money. And popularity. And material things. And all these things. That we desire. It can't quench it. And so some of you, God has blessed you and he's given you good things in life, but you're willing to trade it in. You're ready to, you're ready to trade because you think whatever it is will quench your soul. It won't, my friends. That's why God in his wisdom says blessed are. You want true happiness? You want real happiness in your life? Happy is the person. Blessed are those who have their natural God-given cravings. Those God that hunger, that thirst. Blessed are those that pursue righteousness. In other words, the things of God for they Shall be filled. They shall be satisfied. And today if you're not satisfied. May I propose this question. Could it be you're chasing satisfaction? And if you're chasing satisfaction. And if you're chasing happiness. I am telling you on pastoral authority. You're chasing the wind. And you'll never catch it. You'll never catch it. You'll never catch it. And you'll trade in those beautiful and blessed things that God has given you. You'll trade them in for cheap and worthless things that can never satisfy. Craving is not wrong. It's what you fill it with that could be wrong. You say, but Chad, okay, okay, I followed you up to now. And I get what you're saying. I can't pursue happiness. I have to pursue God. I can't chase the satisfaction. I've got to go after God that satisfies. But okay, Chad, I've got that. But how do I do it? Go back to the beginning. Are you poor in spirit today? Do you see yourself as so dependent on the Lord that you have nothing of value to offer him? Do you see your sin as though God sees it? Have you came to a place where you can see yourself as God sees you? And is there a humility about you? Is there meekness about you? See, the point of all of that is to empty you. So my question today is are you emptied? Or are you so Full of you that there's no room for the righteousness of God you know the worst thing about going to a buffet is that you just overeat right <laughs> and you walk out of there so full so stuffed there's not room for anything else could it be that you're going along the buffet of life just filling yourself with all that life has to offer that there's no room for God and righteousness there's no room for self-discipline there's no room for spiritual disciplines there's no room I don't know where you are today in this regard but I know this The more empty you make yourself of you, the more filled and satisfied you'll be with the Lord. I promise you that. So you say, Chad, how do I get there? Well, empty yourself. Empty yourself. And listen, this is a process. You know, I tell people in my counseling office all the time. I tell them all the time. You didn't get to where you are overnight. And you're not going to get out of it overnight. Take the long view. Well, you know what? You haven't filled yourself with you overnight. You're not going to empty it overnight. It's going to be a process. And this needs to be a journey, a walk with the Lord. That you began to say, okay, God, empty me of me. And let me begin to be filled with more of you. God isn't against happiness. God isn't against satisfaction. But God doesn't want your life to be cheap. He wants it to be something of value. Will you go that path? Will you allow Him to mature you in the Lord? Father, I thank you for these scriptures. How it aligns us in a world... In a culture, in a society that measures with all the wrong measurements. Matthew 5 teaches us how to really measure our lives. And in a world that says you're not valuable unless you're this. I'm so glad, God, that you reject all that. To you, the valuable people are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The empty for they shall be filled. Oh, I thank you, Jesus Christ. Help us as a church to empty ourselves that we may be filled with you. We bless your name today. We honor glorify you today in Jesus mighty name